Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. We read from this a few moments ago. And as we are here, I would like for you to consider for a few moments, before we actually look at the text, what it must have been like for the disciples of our Lord Jesus over the past few weeks leading up to what happens beginning in verse 16 where they see Jesus on the mount. What has it been like for the disciples? I want to start by thinking about how where they traveled back to Judea because Lazarus had died. You remember that? And the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, they're seeking to kill you. Well, we, we are going anyway. And so they travel back to Judea, outside of Jerusalem, because Lazarus had died. And so there, the disciples were obviously in fear for their lives. Because they weren't just after Jesus, they were after his disciples. And so there was a little bit of fear and concern about the danger that uh, would have come upon them because of the Jews and even the Romans. But while they were there, they witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead for four days. And now they see this one come out of the tomb, bound by the grave cloths, and Jesus says, untie him and let him go. Now, that must have been astounding, amazing. And so here they are now, excited and overwhelmed with amazement with what Jesus has done. So it goes from danger to exhilaration and excitement. Then they celebrated with Jesus what he called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper when he told them that he would no longer be eating and drinking with them. And he gives to them the Lord's Supper. And there they must have been a bit confused, not sure of what was going on, because now he keeps telling them that he's going away. Where are you going? Why are you going away? Where are you going, Lord? So there's a bit of confusion. Following that, Jesus was arrested. And he was handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the Romans for several trials following his arrest. And then they must have had great concern for what was going to happen to Jesus, their leader, their Lord. And then indeed many of them witnessed him brutally mistreated and crucified. And that, of course, led to great sorrow and mourning for their loved Lord Jesus. They hid, they wept, they were bewildered, and then suddenly they hear he's alive. On Sunday, the first day of the week, the ladies come and say, He is risen! He is alive! 
And so now they have joy, but that joy has to be mixed with bewilderment still. And maybe a little bit of confusion. Wait, we saw him die. Now you're saying he's alive? You know, you always wonder why they couldn't remember Jesus said that would happen. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out on them yet to remember these things. And so they were confused. Is he really? Some doubted. Thomas doubted. Is he? Could he be alive? And yet, while they were hiding again in the upper room, he appears to them and he shows them that he is indeed alive, that he lives again. And so now they do have that joy of knowing that their Savior has been raised from the dead. But he doesn't stay with them. He goes away again. He disappears from their sight and only comes back on a few occasions according to the scriptures that we have. And so they must, where is he? What happened? Is he really alive? So the joy, once again, mixed with perhaps a bit of bewilderment. So it is, as we say, it was, as we say, a bit of a roller coaster ride of emotions. Up and down. What's going on? A bit of confusion. And now... In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, they come to the mount where Jesus told them that he would meet them. The only place that Jesus said he would meet them, the only appointment of his resurrection appearances here in Matthew, chapter 28, beginning at verse 16, as they see him on the mount. This is our next stop in our current series, the ongoing work of the resurrected Christ. After having seen his appearance on the shore, the Sea of Tiberias, or really the Sea of Galilee, and then spending several weeks considering his appearances as reported by Paul, today we come to his appearance on the mount. Now I want to take a few weeks to open up this passage. Verses 16 through the end of the chapter, 16 to 20. I'm going to take several weeks to look at this text, to, as we say, exegete it, which really means to unpack it, to open it up, and to see what is being said. Because we're very familiar with this text, but there's a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of things that Jesus says and does that we sometimes may gloss over and miss. And I want to spend some time and look at it and see what is going on here. It is a vital passage. There is a lot from this text that has governed the church for its entire existence. And I want to spend, as I said, some time opening it up. And we will begin with what we might call the Mount in Galilee. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So Jesus not only told them to go to Galilee, 
Apparently, he had told them that he would meet them, not just in Galilee, but on the mountain. Because this is the mountain, or the mount, that Jesus had designated. I want to take a moment to point something out. Matthew does not include any of the other occasions that Jesus appeared to the disciples. You ever notice that? Matthew does not show any of the other times that Jesus appeared to the disciples. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus appears to the disciples. Now, what we do have prior to verse 16, prior to the disciples going to the mount, we do have the account of the women and what happened there. If you look at verse 5, it says that the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. You know, they're looking at the tomb and they see angels in there. What would you be? You would be afraid. And that's why you often hear angels saying, as Gabriel said to Mary, do not fear. You often hear angels saying, don't be afraid, because you'd be afraid. And so here the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. There it is. He told them he was going to rise. He told them what would happen. It's just sort of like they didn't get it. But they said, He is risen just as He said He would. And then He says, He is not here, He's risen. Come and see the place where He was lying. Go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see Him Behold, I have told you. So right away, we have these women who go to the tomb. They meet the angels and the angels say, he's not here. And they tell them, go. Go back and tell the disciples. So they still have not seen the resurrected Lord. The angels tell them, the angel gives them this information. In verse 8, they quickly run to tell the others. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Again, I say to you, we should all have fear and great joy when it comes to the worship of God. But they left with fear and great joy and ran to report to the disciples. But behold, you know when you see that word behold or lo as it is sometimes translated That means it was a surprise. It was a shock. It was something different. It just happened. And behold, Jesus appeared to them. That would be the women. Jesus appears to the women. Can you imagine? Here they meet angels who tell them that Jesus is not here. He is risen from the dead. Go tell the disciples, and then on the way, you meet him. That must have been an astounding event in the lives of these women. Jesus appears to the women. And, obviously here, they recognize him. He meets them 
and he greets them. Some commentators that I read and looked at some of this and said, he probably said something like, hello. So here we have Jesus greeting these women. Can you imagine a casual greeting from the risen Savior? Hello, ladies. With the tenderness and kindness of the risen Savior, He greets these women. And notice what they do in response. And they came up to Him. They came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Now, I'm going to come back to this, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But I want you to notice two things. They took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. They took hold of His feet. What would they have had to do in order to take hold of His feet? They would have gotten down on their knees or their faces and reached out to hold his feet, and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. This is what men do when they see the living Savior. They worshipped him. When they realized that it was Jesus, their Lord, who had been raised from the dead, They got down on their faces and worshipped him. Like I said, we're going to come back to that. But I want to move on now. So, prior to verse 16 though, this is the only account in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is seen as being risen from the dead. He has nothing about the meeting of them in that room when the uh, ten were there. And Thomas was not. Matthew doesn't mention the fact that the following Sunday he met with the eleven, Thomas being back in their midst. Matthew does not record him showing himself to them at the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Galilee. It's the same thing. Uh, Matthew does not include that. He includes none of our Lord's appearances to the apostles whatsoever until they come to that place that he had appointed on the mount. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but let's just go to what we have here in the text and see that this place he designated to meet them here in Galilee, and I want to talk about it just a little bit. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this account as it was given from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I mention this in regards to the fact that many people suggest that it was here, in this account, that Jesus appeared to the 500, more than 500 at one time. We made the point that this was not at all uncommon for Jesus. In fact, this was, according to the Gospels, a rather common place or 
occasion where he would minister prior to his death. Look back to chapter 15 again. I'll just remind you of this. Matthew chapter 15. And look down to verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. That's where we are, in Galilee. And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. Now, if you continue on in this text, you find that it was here that Jesus fed the 4,000. Now, I know I'm not a mathematician, but 500 is somewhat less than 4,000. So it is not at all beyond reason to consider that there could have been certainly 500 people in chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew that would go to meet Jesus at this pre-appointed place and obviously time. We had mentioned that the women would want to to have gone. Certainly they would want to see their Lord again. And so would probably many others. And so that is why a lot of theologians believe that the 500, the more than 500 at one time, is right here in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16 and following, where the disciples go to see Jesus. We also made the point, as to some theologians, that it would have been so much better for him to give the Great Commission to all of these people than just to the eleven disciples. You also have to realize that there were other followers of Jesus who were followers of him from the very beginning who saw his life, his ministry, and his works. We know that from the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 tells us that they had to pick a replacement for Judas because Judas had now hung himself and he needed to be replaced. And one of the criteria was that it would have been one from among their number who had seen his works from the very beginning and seen what he had done. So there were other disciples of Jesus who very much like the apostles went with him wherever he went. However, how do we reconcile that with what Matthew says in verse 16? But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which he had designated. And the question is, how could there have been so many more when the text says that the eleven proceeded to the mountain that he had designated? Actually, it's quite simple. And it doesn't take a twisting of the scriptures or a bending of reason. In the Gospels, Oftentimes, the writers focus on certain things for the purpose of emphasis, for the purpose of 
showing their focus to be in this area and on this particular fact. While in other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, a parallel passage, an account of the same thing, other writers focus on something else that took place at that same time or occasion. For instance, I don't take the time to turn there, but you know that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew points to the fact that there were two blind men who called out to Jesus, where the other Gospels suggest that there was one. Or one Gospel may point out as he was leaving Jericho and the other one as he was coming into Jericho. It is a matter of emphasis. It is a matter of Focus, And so it is not wrong to assume that there were more than the 11 just because Matthew focuses his attention on the fact that the 11 disciples did go to that mountain. He is simply pointing out to us and telling us that each one of the apostles of our Lord Jesus was there. And they went as they were commanded by Jesus to go to the mountain. Now I'm going to come back to that also again. But now if you would please look at the text as we go on. And we consider beginning in verse 17. The fact that the disciples worshipped the risen Lord. All Eleven were there, Matthew tells us. Now, why would there be eleven? Judas was already gone. But the other eleven were there. But here we begin looking at verse 17. Here we look at verse 17 and see the fact that the disciples worshiped the risen Lord as we read. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. They worshiped. They see the risen Lord and they worshipped him. I want to spend a few moments to consider what this means and what this is. Actually, that's what we're going to do. We use the term worship often. We say it. We say we do it. We focus on it. We want to pray for it. We want to pray about it. What is worship? First of all, let's consider what it means. What it means. Now, the term and the word simply means to kiss, to kiss the hand. Proskuneo is the Greek word. To kiss or to kiss the hand. It is a token of reverence. That's the root of the word. Now, it often included the notion or the thought of falling prostrate on the ground, and bowing to the ground, and even touching your forehead to the ground. Worship. Falling before someone as a token of respect, and kissing them, or kissing their hand. Falling before them in homage and in worship. Now, where have we seen that? I said I'd get back to it. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them, and he greeted them, and they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
That is the concept. That is the meaning of the word. To fall before him and pay homage. To fall before him and give him honor and respect and awe. That's what worship is. That is what the word means. They fell at his feet and worshipped him. The term itself is one of reverence, awe, and respect. So back to verse 17. This is what they did. This is what men did all through the scriptures. Look back to chapter 2. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Here we have, of course, the account of our Lord Jesus when he was but a young boy. It is unclear of his age. It may have been approximately two by this time, according to the first appearance of the star. But what happens is the wise men come. And you remember that Herod said, you know, let me know where he is because I want to go and worship him too. Well, actually, he wanted to go and kill him. But the wise men do come, and they come to him at Bethlehem. And we read here in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew, if you'd look down to verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him fell to the ground and worshipped him. This is what worship is. Falling before the one that you are worshipping. It is a token of respect, honor, bowing to the one that you are worshipping. They fell at his feet. Look over to chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Now remember... The wise men knew they were coming to worship the Messiah. I always say this, and and, and maybe you should think about it. You know where the wise men came from? Babylon, Persia, over there. How did they know to look for the coming Messiah? Anybody remember who was in Persia for a long time? Daniel. Daniel left such a mark... Such an impact on that entire nation, that entire area, that for generations and hundreds of years later, the wise men, the astrologers, the religious leaders of the day were still thinking and studying what Daniel had written and what Daniel had said. So that when they saw the star, this is the fulfillment of what Daniel said would happen. And so they came. They knew that this was the Messiah. And they fell before him as such and worshipped. And now what we have here in Matthew chapter 9 is another account of one who may not have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but certainly knew that he was an amazing man of God and probably did think he was the Messiah. And here is one who is in great Need And so we see, because Jesus, it says, if you look at verse 8, the crowd saw this and they were awestruck and glorified God 
for the things that Jesus was doing. Now verse 18, and this one comes to him, seeing these wonderful things, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she shall live. What does he do? He bows down before him. You remember that we saw that passage in the Gospel of Luke of that woman who was a known sinner who came up behind Jesus' feet and bowed down and kissed his feet wet his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her hair. It's all worship. If you would, please, and still in the Gospel of Matthew, turn to chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We have here the account of our Lord walking on the water. Look at verse 28. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. They saw him walking on the water. Amazing. You know, people make fun of this. People make fun of the fact that, oh yeah, they walk on the water, it's like a big joke. This is a miracle. This is amazing. People don't walk on water. And yet Jesus did. And they bowed and they worshipped him. You are indeed the Son of God. They recognized who he was and they fell in worship before him. This is what the Apostle John talked about in Revelation chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. But in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that when John saw him, he fell at his feet like a dead man when he saw the risen, living Savior Jesus. Now, back to chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28. This is what the disciples did. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped the living Jesus. They too at this time, likely fell at his feet in worship. You see Jesus raised from the dead, alive again. You know all of the things that he had done. And you fall at his feet. You fall before him in homage, in worship, because he's God. They knew he was God. They knew that he was the Son of God. This is why we often say in our prayers and in our actions here at the church that we come before him in worship because he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. 
He is the true God, and He has shown Himself to be God with power by the resurrection. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And they therefore fall before Him in worship. This is what men do. This is what the disciples did. They bowed before the living God in worship. And I ventured to say that if there were more than the disciples there, and I have to believe that there were, that many of them also bowed before him in reverence and in worship. Worship. What it means, what men did, what the disciples did, and what we should do. This is what the Bible teaches you do to the living God. This is what the Bible teaches how you are supposed to worship the living God. With fear and awe and reverence. You fall before Him in worship. Not before a preacher. Not before some ridiculous so-called faith healer. You fall not on the ground because Benny Hinn knocked you over. You fall before the living God in awe and wonder and worship. This is what we gather to do Sunday by Sunday. You don't come to church for what you can get out of it or what you can get from the church. You come to church to worship your Savior. We don't gather here to evangelize. We don't gather here to entertain. We don't gather here to make you feel good. We don't even gather here to just study. We gather here to worship. To worship the living God. Because this is what men do. When you realize who you are before God. A sinful man. A sinful woman. Deserving of hell. Deserving of judgment. Unworthy in any way. And then that you have been saved by the matchless, wonderful grace of God, that you have been redeemed, that you have been set free from your sins, and you have come out from under the judgment of God, and will now go to eternity to be with Him in glory, you will fall before this one in worship, in praise, in adoration for all that He has done for you. It will be natural. Natural. It will flow from you. It will be what you want to do. It will be what you have to do. Christians do not have to be prompted to worship God. They will want to worship God. You won't be able to keep them away. You've heard me say this before, but I don't have to call you to tell you to come to church. 
You want to come to church. You want to worship because you know what Christ has done to save you from your sins. You know what Christ has given you, eternal life. You won't have to be prompted. You won't have to be pumped up by some song leader in the front of the church getting you all pumped up to worship God. You won't need shining and dancing lights, laser light shows, and fog on the stage. You won't need a big choir and a band with rock music to get you going. Oh boy, now we're really worshiping God. It is appalling to me to see places that do this and call that worship. That is not worship. That is frivolity. That is what you do in the absence of worship. Pumping people up. Getting people ready. Getting them ready to fall over. Or to speak in tongues or whatever else. That is what you do when there isn't any true worship. You have a religious show. And people will say, oh, well, it's, uh, it's cultural. It's, uh, it's uh, cultural and it's a social thing or perhaps even a national thing. And that's why we do it the way we do it. I don't care how you do it because of whatever reasons you give. I'm talking about a Bible thing. Not a social thing or a cultural thing. It's a Bible thing. Worship comes from the Bible. And we are taught how to worship from the Bible. And this is how they worshiped. It's reverence. It's awe. They fell at His feet. And paid worship. Homage. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish. It's worship. It's worship. And this is what we do. This is the reason we gather. To worship Him, not to entertain men. Because He deserves our worship as the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He deserves our worship. Now I want to just close by seeing something in this text that causes people some kind of a concern. Because it says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But notice what it says next. But some doubted. Some doubted. How could some have doubted? I want to just talk to you and mention to you the uh, meaning of this and the possibilities. Now, there are some who say that perhaps Matthew is referring to what happened with Thomas. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Because after the first day that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the rest of the disciples, Thomas was not there. And he said, I will not believe 
Unless I put my fingers in his hands or my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Doubting Thomas. Don't give Thomas a hard time. He was a good man you find in other areas of the Gospels. But you can understand he was a little bit weary. And so he doubted. And some suggest that this is what Matthew is referring to. I really don't believe that to be the case. Others suggest, as you look further at the text, it says, but some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. Some say that this passage means, this next part of verse 18, is saying that Jesus came closer to them. And so the possibility is that some may have doubted because they didn't see him. Now, the problem is that most are attributing this doubting to the disciples because that seems to be who's being spoken of here. And so they think that, the well, it was the disciples who were doubting. And so the answer to that is that Jesus came closer and then they saw who he was and then they didn't doubt. But he was a little bit too far away. You know, they didn't have glasses in those days. And so maybe they were a little nearsighted and couldn't see that it was indeed Jesus. And so they doubted. But then when he came closer to them, they could see him more clearly and and their doubts were relieved or They were relieved of their doubts. But I don't think that's the case either. Now, I do believe that Jesus did indeed come closer to them. That is in the text. That is here in the text. That he drew near to them and he did speak to them. I do believe that that did happen, but I do not believe that that is how we understand what happened in verse 17 when it says that some doubted. These were his apostles. And his apostles were not going to doubt who he was at this point. This is not the last appearance of Jesus prior to his ascension, but it is likely pretty close to it, if not right next to it. The last one we find in Acts chapter 1. But this was obviously not right after he rose from the dead. So even though Matthew doesn't include the other occasions when Jesus appeared to them, which was in Jerusalem, remember? That was right outside of Jerusalem when he first met with them, when they were hiding in the room and Jesus came in and appeared, though the doors were locked. He came and he was right in their midst and he says, peace be with you. That's the time that uh, Thomas wasn't there. Even though Matthew doesn't record it, it actually happened. It's biblical. And then the next week, Thomas was there and he did put his finger into his hands and he did put his hand into his side and he bowed and he said, my Lord, my God. You think Thomas was still doubting? You think by this time Thomas was doubting? Not anymore. And I don't think that any of the other Ten apostles were doubting either. They had seen him. They sat with him on the sea of Tiberias, had breakfast with him. They saw him fill their nets with fish. They weren't doubting anymore. So this isn't referring to the apostles. I told you I'd get back to this. 
That's why, this is another reason why that many believe that there were many more people here than just the apostles. Now, I mentioned to you how easy that would be remedied to think that there were more than the apostles here, but I'm going to deal with this again. I'm going to show you that this is certainly very plausible that there were other people here who would not have wanted to see Jesus alive. Think about it. A few weeks prior to this, a criminal got out of his grave and started showing himself alive to people all around town. The Romans would not want that. The Romans didn't want this criminal, this corpse, this body to be stolen. That bad, reflects badly on them. And the Jews definitely didn't want it. Because then they said his deception would be worse than in the beginning. That's why they had the tomb guarded. To make sure he didn't get out. Like they could keep Jesus from getting out. We have that account actually right here in this text just before this, where they were to tell the uh, people that they uh, came and stole his body away at night while we were asleep. And that's very plausible. How do you know somebody didn't come into your room last night while you were asleep? You wouldn't know because you were asleep. These guys, these soldiers didn't know. They were asleep. So it was just a big lie. But you see, it really reflected badly on the Jews. So what would the Romans do? And what would the Jews do? They'd be following these apostles. They'd be following them everywhere they went to see what they were doing, to try to arrest them. And they did later on in the book of Acts. They wanted to get these guys. They wanted to quelch this revolution. They wanted to quelch this new Messiah teaching. They wanted to stop them. So where do you think they would be? Right here. Following the apostles. Trying to trap them, catch them, trick them. But what do you think happened when they saw Jesus? That might have changed some minds. But still, some doubt it. And for me, that's the best explanation. That when it says at the end of verse 17, but some doubted, some were doubtful, that's not referring to the apostles. It's referring to some of the others who were there at the mount. Some perhaps of the Romans, some perhaps of the Jews, or maybe even some followers of Jesus who might not have been so certain about what was going on. But remember, it's likely that there were more than 500 people here. And so some of them were obviously those who would be doubtful. I will say this, though, that what the apostles did was worship him. The apostles were not doubtful. They worshipped him. What you and I should do as we recognize Jesus 
as the risen Christ, the risen Lord, the one who gave his life ransom for my sins, was dead and buried and was then raised up again. We should worship him with reverence and awe and wonder. And so I say to you in closing this morning, as we will come back to this text next Lord's Day, do you know Jesus to be Lord who has been raised from the dead? And do you worship him as such? I pray that you do. Let's pray.